This is the Off Duty On Duty Podcast, episode number 50. I'm your host, Brian E. Welcome to the podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com podcast network. On the Off Duty On Duty Podcast, we tackle topics relevant to today's gun owners. We tackle them from the perspective of everyday concealed carriers and the perspective of on-duty law enforcement officers to give you both angles of discussion. Today, I'm going to be joined by Eric Gelhouse, a gunside instructor, longtime California cop, and we're going to talk about Cooper's Combat Triad and how it kind of bridges uh, across all the disciplines, military, law enforcement, and uh, armed citizenry. But first, a word from our sponsors. Our title sponsor, Excess Sites. Excess Sites out of Texas. Check them out at excesssites.com. EDC Belt Company, the foundation belt, the most comfortable, functional, concealed carry belt on the market, hands down. EDCBeltCo.com. CCW Safe, legal service membership for concealed carriers and law enforcement officers, the most comprehensive coverage by the most experienced team. Use code OFFDUTY10 at checkout to save 10% off of your membership. Also, a reminder, sign up for the Concealed Carry Podcast giveaway. Uh, Got to sign up weekly. Last week, or uh, I think last week, they gave away some palm pepper spray. Also, a reminder, the Guardian Conference is right around the corner, September 17th, 18th, 19th. Links in the show notes. Seats are filling up fast. There's just a few left, so... Get it while you can, and they have an ammunition sponsor for uh, that will be selling ammunition on site, and also, uh, you know, you can pre-order it and have it there for uh, the conference. Let's bring in our guest. Welcome to the Off Duty On Duty podcast, Eric Gelhouse, who uh, has come highly recommended by uh, not only our brother Daryl, our brother Hanny, and uh, one Mister Fifth Generation Texan, Wayne Dobbs. So I'm glad we finally, the stars aligned and our schedules worked out. So, Well, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, yeah, and, and I guess we bumped into each other at TACCON, and uh, I got to admit, that TACCON was a whirlwind. So we had, uh, it was very brief, but. Uh, yeah. it, was, it was just in passing. Everybody was running, you know, 100 miles an hour down there that weekend. Mm-hmm. The, um, oh, what was it? Yeah, Daryl and I uh, have, he's done a lot of podcasts with me, and he's he's always talking about Cooper's Combat Triad, and when I pitched him the idea that we need to permeate this to the interwebs rather than things like the sub-second draw and, uh, oh, what was the other, the other hot-button topic? Uh, there's been so many now at this point, but uh, he said, well, man, get Eric on and have him, you know, he... I guess you're an, uh, an instructor at Gunsight, right? As well yeah. as many other hats you wear. But, um, and I thought, well, what better than to get, uh, get the guy on from the podcast that actually, uh, works at the facility where this originated, right? You know, right. This, so, first off, what is it? So it's two parts to the modern technique of the pistol, right? The first part was the modern technique itself. And that was the balanced fighting stance, which was, well, is the balanced fighting stance. Originally it was the Weaver heavy duty service pistol, flashlight picture, compressed surprise break on the trigger. And then the, the presentation of the pistol, getting it from the holster 
both hands on the gun, getting it up on target. So that was one half of it. The triad goes, combat triad goes to the mental kind of side of the equation. Everything other than kind of everything else, right? So it's consists of three parts, which is mindset or mental conditioning, gun handling, and then the third part's marksmanship. And that breaks down into its sub areas. There's been discussion over the years about where does tactics fit into that. And some have tried to shoehorn the tactics into the gun handling side of it. It's cleaner for keeping the analogy there of three parts, right? Kind of like a stool. If you lose one leg of a stool, the thing's going to topple over. If you have a triangle, um, you take in one part of the triangle away, the triangle is going to fall. So that's why it's kind of cleaner to keep it in three parts, but there's a heck of an argument to be made. And I remember Pat Rogers kind of making it the first time I heard of it, that, that tactics would be a standalone part, but then it changes the shape and no one's done that yet. Right. I have had exposure to it and, you know, being in law enforcement for 20 years, you hear something that originated from the con- the, the triad something my, right. you know mar- mindset with the color coded um you know uh, states of awareness and and then gun handling of course you know as a recruit or an instructor or whatever you're constantly in gun handling mode and then marksmanship is a lot of what we teach to students so mm-hmm. it, but only seeing it formalized was, you know, maybe 15 years ago when I really started an in-depth study into the handgun. And I thought, Hey, Colonel Cooper kind of figured it out a long time ago. We just, you know, we've never really put it down that way. And I threw a kind of a challenge to some of my instructor friends. I said, you know, if you're, if you're an instructor, you should at least have a functional understanding of Cooper's triad. That's just, so you want to get into the subsections of it or yeah. just before I do briefly, yeah, one of the things ahead. is, and this goes to anybody who puts together a system, the farther you get away from it in terms of origins or levels, the more bastardized it's tended to be. And I don't mean bastardized in a negative sense. You could create something. I could hear what you say, how you describe it, but uh-huh. translate it into my own words. And when I go to explain it to the next guy, I'm not conveying what you came up with or you thought. And it's not that I'm trying to do you wrong or that your system's bad. It's just once I translate it into how I think, I won't explain it and pass it on the same way. And the example of that was what a lot of people think of the Weaver stance. When I went to the police academy at 89, the Weaver I was shown was very bladed, very you know turned sideways and around. And then... A couple of years later, I was fortunate to go to LAPD for some firearms training and then gun sight a couple of years after that. And the Weaver stance I was shown in those two organizations was absolutely nothing like what I'd been shown in the police academy. Apples and prunes, not even apples and oranges. It right. was something way different. Um, so with mindset, it, it gets described in writing as the state of mind that is going to guarantee victory in a fight. Um, I think it's more than that in the dictionary definition, but for what we're talking about, it's getting you to a place where you can win. Um, and we'll talk later, a little bit more later on about not just surviving, but actually kind of the winning side of that. Colonel Cooper, with his book, Principles of Personal Defense, broke it down into awareness, anticipation, concentration, 
coolness, self-control, and confidence. And two weeks ago, I was doing a red dot pistol class, and I had a Navy fighter pilot, a guy who retired out of commanding a carrier airway. And when we were talking about this, he goes, it's compartmentalization for the concentration part, right? And he used the analogy of Top Gun, and he teaches up at Fallon, where Top Gun is now in Nevada. And he, one of the things he'd said was, he goes, if you make any reference to the movie, it's an automatic $5 fine <laughs> up there. But he continued on with the scene at the opening where the pilot's trying to land. And he's looking at the picture of the wife on the dash of the plane. He goes, that never, ever would have happened. He goes, you take all that stuff and leave it behind. And so the concentration of the compartmentalization is focusing on the task at hand. You might have the things, you know, family members, dogs, hobbies that you'll, you will do horrific things to get back to at two o'clock in the morning. But at two o'clock in the morning, that's not in the front of your brain. You're concentrating, you're compartmentalizing on that. Um, the confidence that you can solve the shooting problem, that you can solve the tactical problem. Um, I don't know if you've had John Hearn on, but I'm pretty sure you've heard John talk once or twice. And Hearn talks about staying in the rational brain. Well, that's the self-control part of it, right? Not letting the amygdala hijack everything. Um, and staying in self-control and staying in a conscious thought and letting that drive it. The awareness part's just, you know, the whole yellow part of the color code, right? Paying attention to what's going on around you, or as you start to see things that require more attention, shifting that focus from a general to that, those two dudes across the street that are looking at you and talking. Um, the anticipation part is, yeah, I, I knew something like this could happen. Okay, now it's happening and I'm ready for it. Not way behind the curve. I thought this could happen and I can deal with it. So that's some of the mindset stuff. And again, Cooper's done videos. He's done lectures. Um, we have the video of him that we'll show during during the general pistol class down at Gunsight. Some instructors use it, some don't. But it's it's you get a chance to hear it from him. It was filmed in a different age by a man who came from a different age, so not all of the analogies necessarily flow super well. Um, I mentioned the prevailing versus surviving. You know, if you got folks that are baseball fans, they might have heard of Brian Stowe. Brian was a paramedic out in the San Francisco area. Big Giants fan goes to a Dodgers game, got jumped to the Dodgers game, got horribly beaten. He's got traumatic brain injury and everything else. He survived. Didn't win. He's kind of buggered up for the rest of his life. He didn't survive. And by the same token, you got Alexis Artwall, who's a doc who's done a lot of work for law enforcement and not only enforced science, but in terms of dealing with critical incidents. And Dr. Artwall talks about that hey, you do everything you can to win, but if you can't win, you at least make sure the other dude isn't around to drag your family through a trial. And that may be prevailing far more than surviving. So okay. that's kind of the mindset side on it. Yeah, and, and uh, I've seen a lot of different variations and and people that have taken the color code system and really like as you said, bastardized it. Not necessarily bad, but just really put their own type of interpretation on it and you know i think i've i think i counted there were like 14 colors now that that have yeah. just mysteriously appeared in internet land when i uh i just simply googled cooper's color code and there was 47 different takes on it so uh i appreciate your insight on it yeah and it's more about your ability to respond your ability 
Yeah, it's about your ability to respond rather than the level of danger you're in. So it's red doesn't mean you're in the most danger and white means you're none. It's your ability to process and deal with what's going on around you, your awareness, and then your ability to respond to that. Mindset. Now, I where those words are placed in relation to the triad, right? Is there any meaning behind that? So if you see the triangle diagram, you'll see it as the bottom. Okay. It's the foundation. Got it. And whether Colonel Cooper did this intentionally or not, if you go back and look at like some of the Steinbeck's writing, and I think it's in his, um, it's either in his book or his monograph on King Arthur, the Knights of the Round Table. Okay. Where Steinbeck's talking about mind fights with his brain, sorry, man fights with his brain. Everything else is just a tool. So if you're, if your brain's not aware of what's going on, if your brain hasn't made the decision, I will do what I have to do to prevail and go home to my family. If the brain hasn't made those decisions or traveled those roads, it doesn't matter what tool that you have, right? You, you, you could have a, a pipe pole. You could have baseball bat. You could have the coolest you know, pistol coming out of one of the custom shops this week. But if your brain isn't there, it's immaterial. Okay. And I, I've also seen that oh, through, you know, doing some interweb research that some people kind of place these different things on different places on the diagram. And when you go to the gunsight model, mindset is at the bottom. It's the foundation of everything. It, so, yeah, it's not, it makes sense to say it's the bottom, but really it's the foundation. It's the underpinning for the yeah. other two. If you don't have that, the other two don't matter near as much. All right, so, so mindset, we got that one. Uh, so let's talk. Let's talk marksmanship a little bit. So, going on from mindset to marksmanship, um, that's the ability to deliver the projectile where you need it when, when you need it to get there. One of my early instructors at Gunsight, who was the operations manager for several years in the '90s, is Bill Jeans, and Bill was a California cop. He was a Vietnam Marine. And the way Bill described it was the shooting problem's not that hard. You just have to be able to shoot within the size of a baseball cap. All right. If you put a baseball cap on somebody's torso, um, you got to be able to hit that with a pistol out to 25 yards or farther. If you're going to do it with a shotgun, you can be able to put a slug into that out to 100 or double out buck into that out to 2025. 20, and then if you're working with a rifle, you've got to be able to hit that out to 200 yards or beyond. Um, and you got to be able to do it on demand. Okay. So it, it's not as easy as it, as it seems. Now, if you lay a baseball hat down on a bullseye, B8 bull, that the, the size that the hat covers is about the same part of the bullseye, or the black part of the bullseye. So it's also the accuracy and speed balance. If you take all day to deliver that shot and you put it dead center, what's well, great, you're accurate, but you're not doing it fast enough you're not doing it quickly enough the analogy that carries or the description that carries over from the original ipsec was diligencia vis claritas the dvc accuracy power speed right so you got to hit them you got to have something that's accurate enough to put the rounds where you need them to go that's central nervous system you got to do it in something that's effective and that the power is not the power factor as much as it's the ballistic power behind it. Right now it's not going to pick anybody up and launch them off their feet, but it's hitting them with a round that's going to have some effect. And then the speed's relative. 
and I don't know if it was your podcast with Wayne or somebody recently was talking about a drill that Dave Spaulding does mm-hmm. where he take the fastest shooter and the slowest shooter. It might've been you and Lee. Yeah. It was Lee. Uh, Weeks. Fast, yeah. Fastest shooter and the slowest shooter. And they're three, four, five tenths of a second off, but you have them shoot each other with airsoft guns and they both get hit. Now there's a point where that slow shooter, if they're three seconds slow, there's going to be a noticeable difference, but if they're somewhat close, it's, just being able to get a hit quickly enough to do more damage, being able to get everything into place soon enough to do more damage. Now, if that makes sense, I'm yeah. kind of trying to break it down. The last part of it's the gun handling. And that's everything from being safe with the firearm, loading and unloading the gun, right? Can you load the pistol, do a chamber round verification and unload it without having any issues? And that carries over to shotguns, carbines, everything that you use defensively. Um, if you want to have some fun, take somebody who's not terribly familiar with a semi-auto shotgun and ask them to unload a semi-auto shotgun. That's where you see a gun handling problem. If you okay. don't know which latch controls what versus trying to run every shell through the chamber, which has its own set of problems. It's presenting the pistol, not just from the holster onto target to fire a shot, but also out to a low ready position. Right. Getting it out in a, in a way that like conveys a you've got a clean straight line from the holster out to a low ready. So you can have a straight line from the low ready onto target. But that it, for those that can use that also conveys to the people that you're dealing with that. No, we're not playing around. I actually know what I'm doing. I can handle this thing. Um, you know, we talked about loading and unloading, reloading the gun. Can you reload in clean lines in a reasonable amount of time? Not necessarily something that's going to get you GM, you know, the USPSA nationals, but can you do it reasonably? And I'm not bagging on the USPSA guys. And I don't want it to come across that way. That's just kind of the extreme examples. You don't need, don't need to be there. Can you deal with the stoppages? You know, not the, not just the stoppage when we induce it on the square range. All right, everybody slide forward on an empty chamber, full magazine and the gun can up and get the click. Can you handle that? when it happens to you in the middle of a problem. Uh, one of the things with the body worn camera footage that's been really good for law enforcement, at least the training side of it is watching how many people have stoppages in the middle of a gunfight. Yeah. That, that one's been pretty eye opening to me. Uh, just, and, and not, not brand specific, not, uh, yep. it, it just seems to be this kind of universal phenomenon and, I've seen videos that things looked, uh, how would you say it? Things looked okay. Uh, grip looked okay. Right. Everything looked pretty well established and then having, and then have a stoppage appear for like no apparent reason. And I don't, I don't, I don't know what research is being done on that, but it's definitely concerning. So I have a hypothesis on it, right? You know, okay. what I think is I haven't seen it happen to dudes that drew or dudettes that drew out to a low ready to begin with, right? If they were out at a ready position to begin with, I haven't seen those stoppages happen. I haven't seen it happen or I haven't caught it on somebody who drew and then the problem developed. Like they were maybe a quarter second ahead of the problem. So they were picking up on the problem being it. 
Okay. Where I where it seems to happen is what looks to me like a panic draw. Okay. Like, oh dear God, this has gone bad, and they're not a quarter second ahead of it; they're a second behind it, and now they're trying to get that fast draw, and they're not getting a good grip. Like they almost don't have the foundational grip, and that leads to a stoppage that you almost can't create on the range because mm-hmm. don't, even shooting at somebody with with sims or UTM or something isn't going to create the same level of stress, fear, panic that I think is happening in these draws where guys realize that they're behind the curve and they're trying to get that gun out now rather than having been ahead of it. Yeah, the the thing that uh, caught catches my attention with it is, you know, law enforcement. If you have any reasonable amount of time in in dealing with conflict and problems, night over night over night, shift over shift, you tend to get pretty stress inoculated. So yes, when that happens to a law enforcement officer, that to me, the panic that ensues with that carries a lot more weight than maybe somebody that hasn't been trained or been inoculated in that way to high degrees of stress and complicated problems, right? True. Um, and, and I've seen, I, I saw one recently where everything looked good. And when I slowed it down, the guy had an absolute beautiful grip on the gun and had his left thumb against the slide hard enough that he induced a stoppage. Okay. You know, and I go, maybe your daily concealed carrier that hasn't had that level of, of problem solving all the time that that stress could appear maybe more frequently. Whereas somebody that's, that's doing that for a living all of a sudden ends up in that situation. That is a high, high intensity ordeal to, uh, to get someone with a modicum of training to, to induce that. So, so now here's a problem we're going to have in law enforcement. With the depolicing, the defund the police, don't get involved in as much stuff. Mm-hmm. Cops aren't getting the exposures to those stress events, and they're not getting the inoculation. So now we start to have a generation coming up that doesn't have the exposures to as many high-risk stops, as many you know, violent crime responses where they're getting in there early enough that things are still playing out and now they're not getting the exposure to that they're, and how what would be the impact of that going forward oh yeah that i've never looked at that side of it i've never even considered that side of it to be honest that's pretty thought-provoking but i but i'm with you the advent of body cameras i was pretty shocked to see the frequency of stoppages mm-hmm. and i've seen a lot of training programs that have because of the reliability of ammunition and semi-auto pistols now compared to maybe the early nineties, um, mm-hmm. have really not gotten a rid of it, but they're definitely not putting as much emphasis on it as they did at one time. So, yeah, I think the malfunction clearance needs to be, needs to be a lot higher up in the priority of practice when you can, the problem is, is if you're trying to do it dry, what are you trying to do when you clear a stoppage? You're trying to make the gun go bang. So right. is dry the place to work on it. Um, I know there's a couple different entities now. One of them's uh, did teach at Gunsight. I haven't seen there in a couple of years. So I don't know if he's still on staff, but he had come up with some machined 
dummy rounds that would induce a failure to extract. So you would get the type three with, with, by putting these dummy rounds into your mags. And at least it was such that you weren't setting it up yourself and you didn't know when it was going to happen. You knew what happened in that magazine, but not necessarily when. So you would get a better stimulus on that. Yeah. Uh, our friends at concealedcarry.com are carrying uh, some rubberized molded, and I can't remember the product name off the top of my head, but I don't know. I haven't looked into it. I think it's called the Type 3 Trainer or something okay. to that effect. And it, it kind of has a torpedo shape with like little wings on the front of it to uh, slow down the extraction process. But I don't know if that can be done on uh, live practice. So yeah, I have to call would, them. That Things like that would be the type of stuff to get in there because you're seeing it on video. I'm seeing it on video. I got no doubt other people are seeing it. So then how do we address those parts of it? Yeah. Right. Cause I think we've got to have, it's not just the, whichever malfunction clearance you, you, you choose to use as your primary. It's not just that it's having the stimulus of it happening when you don't anticipate it. That, that is a very difficult one to train when you're dry practicing. I, it's, yeah. I think you can train the mechanics of it maybe, but not necessarily the, the, uh, unexpected induction so to speak right. yeah and on the gun handling too um i sat down and looked at greg morris's book from 1991 on the modern technique of the pistol when you got a hold of me and greg kind of sat down back then late 80s early 90s and wrote the doctrine from gunsight as it was at the time and Greg's gone on to the academic world. Last I heard, he was a professor up at Ball State University in the Midwest. It, but he talks about the gun handling part being something that complements the firing of a shot, but it's not the actual pressing of the trigger. It's everything that surrounds pressing the trigger, except that, except the actual use of that. Yeah, so that that's a pretty good summary, I would say. Um, yeah. Everything but shooting the gun. <laughs> yeah. So, and, 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 you know, that gets to the tactics, right? Do, do you plug tactics into that? This tactics, the standalone thing is it's a triad plus tactics. Yeah. I think if we try to make it into a square, then we lose a lot of what Colonel Cooper and the folks that came since him tried to do with it. Yeah. And I've seen it taught as gun handling and tactics kind of as tactics as kind of a sub portion of uh, gun handling. Uh, and then I've seen some people teach it as a square and all right. sides need to be in, you know, and the more I evaluate, you know, training programs, things like this, I always come back to the triad portion where it's okay. Or the mindset, are we teaching marksmanship? How are mm-hmm. we teaching marksmanship? Is it all rooted in speed and split times? Or is it, can I reliably park around in a, in, in a B8? any given distance under a right. measurable, a measured time, not necessarily wide open, but not, uh, not slow and be yeah. deliberate with it. And that's, I think that's the problem where, where we're talking past each other, getting crossways uh-huh. over this, the sub one second draw. And I don't want to hang up on that per se, but the, what works in a competition environment versus what, is viable not only legally but practically in terms of human factors 
in in the practical application side of things. Uh, there was a discussion I was in peripheral to recently with some of the guys that have been in the sub one second draw things about when does the safety come off on a pistol? And so the, you know, just looking at 1911, 2011 style guns with a frame mounted safety. And so he was asking, okay, I'm new to this. When do I take it off? And there were a sizable number of folks who I could identify their competition backgrounds, either because I know it or from how they described it, who were adamant that that safety comes off before you start to clear the holster. Ooh. On the other side of things, when we're teaching the presentation of the pistol, if you have a frame-mounted safety, if you're drawing to the shot, the safety doesn't come off until the muzzle has rotated onto the target and you made the decision to shoot. If you're drawing to a ready position, that safety stays on until you've made the decision, now I have to shoot. Now I have a, now I have a target or a threat that I have to shoot. What's taught as part of the presentation of the pistol at gun sighting has been going back years is that the sums, if you're drawing to a ready position, the thumb safety stays on until you have made the decision to shoot and you come from that ready position on the target. If you're drawing from the holster, you're going to fire the shot from the holster, then the thumb safety stays on until the muzzle has ro- cleared the holster, rotated forward or it's parallel to the ground, pointing at the target, and you made the decision to shoot. Then you come off safe. And it was, we're both talking about taking off thumb safeties. We're just talking about doing it in, in different environments where, where there's a different context for its use and a different outcome. Yeah, and definitely a different consequence, which is something I right. think that a lot of people overlook in that community. But uh, Rob Latham sent me a message, and he said, someday we're going to realize that competition shooters are just tactical shooters that like to keep score. <laughs> and I said, well, okay, I would, uh, uh, I'll concede that one, you know. Um, I, I won't argue with Mr. Latham at all. <laughs> yeah, me either. I, I, it's it's funny, uh, i I enjoy the discussions he and I have had and super Dave and, and Daryl and Wayne and everybody. It's a, it's a fascinating realm. I just, I wish more people would see, okay, we're all on the same team here, but when you're not in a flat range, the context of flat range and keeping score, the consequences are much higher. And the consequently, the training has to be at a different I'd say a different standard or a different methodology. Um, You know, (laughs) you don't, they all hit something and you don't get them back. I took Tom Givens instructor development class last fall when Cecil Birch hosted it down in uh, outside of Phoenix, Casa Grande. Yeah. And I shot next to a a very well-known GM the whole weekend. I would love to go take a class from the guy on how to run the gun. Mm Mm-hmm but I wouldn't take a, how to clear a building class from him. Yeah. I, so I, I, I want to soak up that dude's knowledge. And the one regret I had from that weekend was I didn't get to have a chance to have him coach me because we were on the same relay right next to each other. So I was kind of hearing overhearing what he was talking to students about, but I never got the benefit of myself. Let's talk about the application of that in like the law enforcement context a little bit. Because law enforcement shooters, they they do tend to have a high degree of success, I would say, given the, the number of incidents they're exposed to and the vastly varying uh, levels of training and proficiency that are out there. I think the success rate 
is is pretty miraculous to be honest but um what are your thoughts on that why why do you think that is a phenomenon because that came out robbie vadis sent me that one uh this week uh, so I, I haven't seen that but the guys down at alert in texas did wrote a book several years ago now on trying to determine which room entry tactic was the best and it, and it wasn't I, i'm not mentioning it because of the tactic they came up with. I'm mentioning it because they actually took a process to get there. But one of the things they did was they went and started actually pulling data from different agencies and they got agencies to cooperate as best possible. So you always hear this, yeah, cops, cops are lousy shooters. We hit 15 to 20% of the time. Right. Um, and then you get an odd event where an agency shoots up a vehicle and you get no rounds into them. The alert folks down in Texas put out a book on tactics. And one of the things that they did was they pulled a lot of shooting data from agencies, right? And what the actual hit ratio was. I think, hypothesis, we do better when we know what we're going into than when it's just a reaction. So if, if we know we're going to a call that's, that's going to involve an armed suspect and the likelihood of violence, our folks are a little bit better mentally prepared for that. And that's where we see the successes. When things just happen or it's purely reactive, um, if folks can't stay in their rational brain, that's where I think we have the problems with it. Yeah, I think that's a, a fair assessment, but the, the bulk of law enforcement shootings come out of patrol. I mean, let's just face yep. it. Right. And generally those are unprepared, right there. I would say the bulk of them is, is a pretty unprepared, uh, reactionary type scenario. So I think that contributes greatly to that, uh, phenomenon talk about like the the triad and one of the, the kind of loop it back to that with uh training and and all manner that that involves not necessarily you know any one particular piece of training but every program that i've looked at that i've evaluated if there is a shortcoming it always comes down to one of the legs of the triad so if you're an armed citizen, how can you, how can you apply that that Cooper's triad to your own training? You have any ideas on that or thoughts on that? You you start out, you start out with the awareness side of it. Um, Cause that's something you can, you can, you can start working on immediately when you're out walking the docks, who's around you. When you're at the grocery store, what's going on? You pull into a parking lot. Is somebody paying attention to you? How can I get out of here? Is there any drama going on? that's something that folks can start doing today. Um, the other is the awareness. The awareness, I'm sorry, not the awareness side of the equation. It's the willingness side of the equation. And I think um, there's a quote going back to one of the John Wayne movies, and it might have been the shootest, where he talks about pretty much everybody's skill set's equal, but he's willing, and a lot of folks aren't. The understanding that you, you may have to do that, and I, I shot you a PM about something I heard you say on a podcast. Oh, yeah. And it was something that that I had been taken to task for saying um, on an internet post prior to a shooting that I was involved in, and the, the media found it, and the media spun out over that comment and another one I had made in regards to surviving an ambush. Right, and that nobody could turn on the mean gene for you. I was quoting Pat Rogers and said, nobody can turn the mean gene on for you. You're going to have to do that yourself. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny. I, so, I got taken to task over that very same statement, very young in my career. Um, 
not in a court set, a legal setting uh, as, as you did, but, uh, but yeah, I, I faded some heat over that, that very statement that we, we talked about. So the awareness, the, I guess the acceptance, the, the awareness of that, what you might have to do, the acceptance of what you might have to do, um, is the next thing up, right? So that, that goes to the actual, the operational mindset, I think. So once you get the mindset part, both the awareness of what's going on around you and the acceptance of what you might have to do. And, you know, unfortunately we lost Dr. William April, but he had a lot of really good stuff on how criminals think because criminals do not think and process like you and I do, like your listeners do, like the decent normal human beings that are our neighbors do. So then you get to the marksmanship side of it, right? Can you actually hit what you're aiming at in terms of the realistic distances that live in your world. Hey, I am a huge fan of red dots. I, I got tasked to write gun sites, pistol mounted optics program and teach it. You can do some amazing things with a red dot pistol, but is a hundred yard shot with a handgun necessarily the most likely thing you're going to encounter. No, it's probably somewhere between arm's length and a couple car lengths. So, you know, can you, can you do work in that area? Are you aware enough of what's around you that you can pick up a problem in that space and then solve it, you know, marksmanship wise, if you have to, and then keep, keep the gun up and running, you know, load it to where you leave the house with a loaded gun, unload it without problems. If you're going to take the gun apart to clean it, you know, after your next rain session, can you clear a stoppage if it happens? And we just talked about how you get the stoppages you know, with the body worn camera footage. So I think if you look at it as a guide, the things you need to work on that, and then continue to practice, those would probably be the two, two ways I'd recommend using them, using the combat triad. That makes sense. Yeah. Excellent. You have a final thought. I give every guest a final thought. Sorry about all the internet issues that are <laughs> attempting to hijack the podcast, but, uh, we, we shall endeavor to persevere. Uh, yeah. so, so do you have a, a final thought for, uh, I'll put out what I tell folks at the end of a gunsight class, right? I, I teach shooting classes. I teach shooting tactics classes and I love seeing folks come through, be it the ones I do locally or the ones I do down there. But by the same token, people drive a car a whole lot more than they ever go to the range or need a gun. They're around people in their world who may have medical conditions, right? Craig Douglas's classes were a huge eye-opener, and I've been in a career where you, you have to close with people and put your hands on them in order to take them to jail. But taking a driving class, taking a medical class, taking a put-your-hands-or-keep-somebody's-hands-off-of-you class are probably all as important. And the world right now is changing. Um, and, and it's changing fairly quickly a lot to something that a lot of us aren't comfortable with because we don't recognize it. And the more skills we have, that goes to the confidence. That confidence goes to the mindset issue that underpins the combat triad. So that, that would be my final thought for everybody. And then just, I thank you for your time. I thank you for having me on, Brian. I appreciate it. All right, guys, that was episode number 50, Cooper's Combat Triad. Check it out. Thanks again to Eric Gelhouse for joining the Off-Duty, On-Duty podcast for an episode. 
Reminder, please check out today's sponsors, our title sponsor, XS Sites, EDC Belt Company, ccwsafe.com. Save 10% off your membership by entering off-duty tenant. Check out the Concealed Carry Podcast giveaway. Sign up weekly. Link is in the show notes as always. And please, if you're thinking about it, if you're on the fence, get get on board now with the uh, Guardian Conference. It's coming up and it's coming fast. The Off-Duty, On-Duty Podcast is a production of Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC. Eastridge Training and Consulting, LLC, presents the following content for educational purposes only. Always take proper precautions, follow all firearm safety rules, consult with a competent firearms instructor, and have trained medical staff on hand when operating live firearms. Legal content, commentary, or explanations do not constitute legal advice. We are not attorneys and recommend always consulting with competent legal counsel when researching or seeking to understand laws and legal application. Eastridge Training and Consulting LLC, its participants, partners, and affiliates are not liable for any action taken based on the content of this shared podcast.